All right, well, let's, uh, let's take a moment and pray together. Jesus, there is no other king like you. God, as we sing the words of that song, let it not just be words, Father, but things, uh, truths and realities that seep deeply into our hearts. No other king that would let the outsider in. No other king that would come to serve the least of these. No other king who would endure the cross for us, who would come in the midst of all of our brokenness, all of our waywardness, and all of our sin. Jesus, there is no one like you. And Father, we thank you for that. God, I am aware today uh, there are people in this room who have been walking with Jesus uh, for many, many years, decades. And there are some of us here today, Father, who have yet to even start a relationship with you. Some here who maybe have never met this king, you. And I pray, God, today that you would meet us right where we are. And that by the Spirit, your Spirit, you would speak to those of us, God, again, who have been walking with you for so long and may we be increasingly obedient to you and in love with you. And then, God, that you would uh, encounter the person today. Let them have an encounter with you uh, who need to just hear from you. Those wondering, uh, is there a king? Is there a God? And does he care about me personally? God, we trust that you will do this uh, by your power. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, how are we doing, Life Point? Good, nine of you, that's good, right? How about everybody else, we doing all right? Good, my name is Kale, I'm the teaching pastor uh, from our Delaware campus, from LifePoint's Delaware campus. Uh, the teaching pastors are rotating today, getting a chance to uh, go around and, and just hopefully be a blessing to other campuses. I know it's a blessing to us just to get to see what God is doing uh, at our uh, different campuses and different congregations. So I'm grateful to be here with you today. Uh, Corey is over at our Lewis Center campus, and I just want to say, just take a moment. So, uh, you know, as, as we look back at 2022, reflecting on the fact that a year ago, um, you know, we had not launched here, and uh, I didn't know Corey, and, and I was, you know, part of just that process of praying through this, and Lord, is this what you want us to do? And uh, much of my attention was going to the launch of our Marion campus, because Delaware was sort of leading in that process and sending people there, but as we prayed, and as I got a chance to meet Corey, and my wife and I sat down with he and Kelly and had uh, dinner up in Delaware and just talked through with them, I just want to say I'm, I'm personally very grateful uh, for Corey, for Kelly, when we talk with them, uh, I know that this is still very new and some of us still getting to know each other, but when I talk with him and he and Kelly, uh, there's just a pastoral concern and love and care for you. Uh, he loves this group of people and he cares for you uh, deeply and, uh, and I love him and I'm grateful for him. I'll say as well, uh, I mentioned, you know, uh, about a year ago as we were praying through this process, like a lot of my attention was on, hey, we're launching in Marion and I knew a lot of our families and individuals were going to go. I did know of at least one couple that I thought, I think they'll probably go to the Plain City campus. They lived here, but turns out at least, at least three of our, our families or couples ended up uh, leaving Delaware to come here. And we don't really say leaving as much as sending, right? Because we just go where God tells us to go. But I remember one couple in particular, I hope they don't mind me singling them out, but the, the bakers, Logan and Mary, came to me in, in my office, and uh, they were folks that my wife and I had personally had a chance just to disciple, and I'm like, they're like, we're going to Plain City. I'm like, why? You know, and, and I was like, do you live, are you from Plain City, right? Are you, uh, are you, do you have ties there? And they're like, nope. Uh, we just sense as we've prayed that God wants us to go there and be a part of that. 
right? The Ritchie family as well. So, so I, I share that with you to say this. Um, there were folks that I thought, well, that makes sense for them to go there. And then folks that came and out of the total blue, they're like, hey, we're going. And, you know, there's a little part of you that's like, oh, well, you guys weren't supposed to go, right? But then the more Christ-like part of you is like, God, this is what it's about, right? Sending people. And for me, it's just an affirmation that God's doing something here. Right? The very fact that he's speaking to people and saying, I want you to go there and be a part of this is affirmation that the Spirit is doing something. And so I say that to say, I hope that as you look back over the last nine or ten months, that you're excited about what God has done. But as you look into 2023, and we as a church look into 2023, I hope that you're excited and anticipatory, right? With excited anticipation about, God, what are you going to do next year? And how do you want to use this group of people to reach this community with the good news of Jesus? So with that said, let's turn to Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 1, going down to 16 today. Um, We are in a a series right now, week two of a series we've called, uh, we're calling Uncommon King. Uh, Big idea of this series, something if you're a note taker, by the way, and I will say guests as well, um, there's a resource, before we jump in, there's a resource for you called lpguest.com. We've developed that for you. If you wanted to pull up a a web browser, uh, just type in lpguest.com. That resource will have all the message notes for you uh, this morning. It'll have all the stuff that we have on the screens. There's a guest information card there. If you wouldn't mind taking just a moment to fill that out during our time together today or stop at Guest Central on your way out, either one, we would love to be able to connect with you. But this resource is for you because everything we have here as far as notes that's on our LifePoint Ohio app is there at lpguest.com as well. And we're just grateful that you're here. But the first, first point there in your notes today, Jesus came to earth to establish his kingdom in our hearts. Jesus came to earth. That's the big idea of the series, that Jesus came to earth to establish his kingdom in our hearts. And the reason we say it that way, an uncommon crown, it's an uncommon kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom like other kingdoms. It doesn't have physical boundaries. It's a kingdom that's established in our hearts. The way the kingdom of God grows is not by physical conquest. The way the kingdom of God grows is as people surrender their lives to Jesus and his reign and his rule take over in our hearts as light pushes out spiritual darkness and more people come to know and love Jesus. That's how the kingdom grows. It's an uncommon kingdom with an uncommon king who has an uncommon crown, not an earthly crown, but the crown of thorns that he took upon himself as he went to the cross and endured that for you and for me, as we just sang a minute ago. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking really at the, in some ways, the nature of the kingdom by looking at the nature of the king. Who is this Jesus? And last week, we looked at the prophetic announcement of his coming from Isaiah 9. We looked at this amazing statement that unto us a son is born, unto us, or a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and looked at that. Today, we're going to look at Matthew 1, 1, and we're going to see the train wreck that is the human lineage of Jesus and what that means. Next week, we'll look at the spiritual nature of his kingdom, the clash of kingdoms between he and Herod, and then on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about just the joy of his arrival. But Matthew 1, 1 starts this way. The book, this first chapter, first verse in the New Testament, talking about the arrival of Christ. And he says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I know that as we hear the word genealogy, all of us get very excited, 
right? You hear that and you're like, all right. I tease with our Delaware campus sometimes. We as Christians have a lot of things that we do. One of the things we do is we love to take Bible verses and put them on coffee mugs and over our walls, right? Over the doors of our walls. You know that cursive script, right? And these three abide. I've never seen Matthew 1.1 as one of those verses, right? Have you ever had your coffee mug and seen the book of the genealogy, right? Nobody does that. These are not necessarily the passages that we commit to memory. We're going to go through a lot of names this morning, but I promise you there's a reason that Matthew is doing this. Matthew is speaking, right, to primarily a, a Jewish audience, and it's important to them to know these genealogies. Where does this person come from? And, and it, just in verse 1, he tells us, if you're, if you're not careful, you might miss it. He tells us several things right here. He says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. It's Greek for the Messiah. So he tells us he's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, like we saw last week. Do you know, conservatively, there are more than 300 prophetic statements in the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ. More than 300. All of them fulfilled in the coming, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the eventual return of Jesus. And some are as broad and as grand and majestic in scope as what we saw last week with Isaiah 9 telling us, right? Unto us a child is born and the son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders. Mighty God, everlasting father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. Some are as grand as that. And then some are as specific and as narrow as he's going to be coming to Jerusalem on a donkey. Do you know why Jesus comes? If you know the story right, as he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he comes riding a donkey. Do you know why he's riding a donkey? Why not? You're like, you ever thought about that? Why not a horse, a big one, right? Why not an elephant or a camel or something awesome? Like, why a donkey? By the way, I'm here. We still have donkeys right across the road here, right? So this shouldn't be too far. I grew up in rural Ohio, my wife as well. We live in the burbs now, and uh, we just miss sometimes riding around and seeing livestock. So we do that often. We'll just drive north of Delaware to drive back out in the country. But, but he comes riding on a donkey. Why? Because it's a direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 says this. Hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, the prophet said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes to Jerusalem on a donkey because he knows who he is and he knows what he's doing. And in fulfillment, in direct, purposeful fulfillment of what the prophet said hundreds of years before, Jesus comes riding on a donkey. And Matthew 1 tells us he's the fulfillment of that. He is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Not only is he a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, he's also the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants. All of these promises, these covenants that God made with his people throughout the history of Israel, that's why he talks about he's the son of Abraham and the son of David. He is reaching back into Israel's history and showing them this is not a disconnected series of stories. It's all been leading to this person, this moment, Christmas time, as God steps into the world in fulfillment of the promises he made to Abraham, the promises he made to David. If you're maybe not familiar with the Old Testament stories, right? So Genesis 12, God takes Abraham, tells him, I want you to leave your family and Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make you into a great nation and through your descendants, I will bless all the families of the earth. Genesis 15, the promise still hasn't been realized yet. He doesn't have any children and he 
God takes him out one night. It's a beautiful scene. He takes him out into the night and he says, Abraham, look up. Look at the stars. Can you count them? He says, I'm gonna give you descendants as numerous as the stars. And Abraham says, how, Lord? Right now, I don't even have any kids and all my stuff's gonna go to the chief servant of my home. And God promises, no, from your from you, from you and Sarah, you're going to have a kid and you're going to have descendants like the stars of the sky. My oldest boy a couple years ago uh, couldn't sleep, so I took him. He's, he's probably four at the time, four or five, and he and I just walked out into our backyard. Again, it's the suburbs, so you can't see the stars that well, but as well as we could, right, I looked, had him look up and I just said, buddy, you realize a couple thousand years ago, a few thousand years ago on a night Maybe like this, God told Abraham to look up at the stars in the night sky and he made that promise to him that he would give him descendants like that, as numerous as that. The New Testament tells us that by faith, right, we are the children of Abraham. Everyone who trusts Jesus becomes a child of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And today, nominally speaking, at least, there are two billion of us. And throughout the centuries, billions more. We're on our way to numbering the stars. God is fulfilling that promise that he made thousands of years ago through his son, Jesus. Matthew's telling us that. Matthew's also pointing back to the kingship and the promise that God made David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you remember, God raised David up from being a shepherd boy, the youngest of his brothers, and he made him king over the nation of Israel. And when all the wars had ceased and David had his kingship established, he sits and he builds this big palace. And he's sitting in his palace one day and he says, God... I'm here in this palace, but you're out in a tent. The Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was thought to dwell, was still in this tent, this tabernacle. And David's like, that's wrong, God. I want to build you a palace. I want to build you a house. And God looks back at David and says, David, I don't need you to build me a house. I don't live in things made by human hands. Because he's God. And instead, God says, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to establish your house and your, this throne and you're going to have a descendant sitting on that throne forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end, as Isaiah tells us. Jesus, Matthew is telling us, is the fulfillment of that. That promise made 1,000 years before to David is now being fulfilled as Jesus takes up and inaugurates the kingship. That's all just in verse one, right? We've got 15 more verses to go. Here we go. All right. Actually, I'm going to read through, right, the next 15 verses or so. And again, I know we've all read this and memorized all the names already, but bear with me, right, as I read through it. Abraham was the father. There's a purpose here, a promise. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Benadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's Important, you might take note of that. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
Babylon. That's another important point, right? Of the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel and Mathen. I'm going to skip a few verses here. Go down to the end of 15. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And then 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, if you're new to the faith, and to be honest, even if you're very seasoned, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, it's likely you've missed, I know I did, the full significance of all that Matthew just said. It's likely you've maybe missed what I'm going to call the wonderful absurdity of this genealogy. You say, why, why absurd? Okay, why is it absurd? Because there are so many names? No. It's because of the names that Matthew chooses to include and the fact that against custom and completely uh, seemingly absurd to us, Matthew, in announcing the perfect sinless son of God, intentionally chooses to highlight the sinful people, the broken periods, the difficult moments, the humble moments, the embarrassing episodes in Israel's past and in the lineage of Jesus. He goes out of his way to present Jesus coming in the midst of all of that brokenness. And I'll try to show you what I mean by this. So I was a, I was a history major, right, in college, and I'm reading a, a medieval history right now. It's been pretty fun, pretty excellent, but I'm reminded of the fact that oftentimes throughout history, when people write histories or biographies of their leaders and of their kings, this was very popular in the Middle Ages, they would present this very shiny filtered, right, Christian monks, to be honest, were some of the worst at this. They would write what are called hagiographies, right? That technically means the lives of the saints or the study of the saints. But, but it's come to mean basically a biography that just presents the person as perfect. So they would present these kings in, in ancient, right, in antiquity. Sometimes they would even give them backgrounds where they would say they were descended from the gods, right? That's their background. They're descended from the gods. They're this otherworldly figure, or they would present them as just perfect, they have no blemishes. They did everything right. They never lost a battle. Here's this very shiny, doctored, polished, filtered version of who this person is. And we hear that, we maybe chuckle at it and go, man, it's a good thing we don't do that anymore. We do it every day, do we not? Social media, we present to other people, whether about someone else or ourselves, we present this filtered, shiny, Here's my best foot forward. Whether you do it in social media or other ways, we've been doing this for a long time as human beings. And the great irony is that you've got human beings trying to present human beings as gods, and here as Matthew presents God, he actually shows the very human background from which he came and the mess into which he stepped and the people he came to save and all their brokenness. You say, why... Why does he go against, what do you mean he goes against custom to do that? Let me, let me just show you, right? In announcing the Son of God, one, he includes five women in this gene genealogy, okay? That's against custom at the time. Normally, you would have only presented the men in the genealogy. Matthew bucks tradition and presents five women. You're like, well, they must have just been spectacular women. They were in some ways, but also three of the five are not even Israelites, so he presents these outsiders, and sometimes, if you know the history of the Israel, of, Ju of the Jewish people, there were times where they got very insular, right? This happens in the church sometimes, where it's like, hey, we like us, but we don't like them. And he presents three of them are not even Israelites, and all five of them have some way in which their story is one that you might go, let's just not talk about that. 
Judah and Tamar. So Tamar is the woman there, Judah, her father-in-law. To be honest, this, that's another thing to notice. When he talks about Judah and he says Judah and the, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, if you know the Old Testament history, you would have expected he would have said Jacob and his son Joseph. Why not talk about the good one? Why talk about the one who participated in throwing Joseph into a pit and selling him into slavery? Because amazingly, God says, I'm going to choose Judah to be the one through whom Christ comes, not Joseph. And then Matthew says, I'm going to highlight it. I'm going to tell you about Judah and Tamar. And to be honest, there are kids here. I can't even share all the details of that story. It's messy and wrong and sinful. And he lies and she tricks him. And it's, I mean, it gets ugly in some ways. And yet God works through it. He mentions Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. She lived in Jericho. Now, she exhibited great faith, but before she was changed and gave her life to the Lord and became part of Israel, I mean, her background is not good. And you could have totally imagined Matthew going, I'm going to skip over that episode. Then he gets to Ruth. You're like, what's wrong with Ruth? She's awesome. She is awesome, but she's also from Moab, which is Israel's enemy. She gets highlighted in the story. Bathsheba, this is perhaps my favorite of the way Matthew presents it because he doesn't even give us her name. He could have totally said David and Bathsheba and then comes Solomon, but instead he intentionally highlights David, King David, the, the good one, right? He intentionally highlights the worst moment of David's life, his greatest sin, and he calls her the wife of Uriah just to remind us in some ways of, hey, this is what happened here. David orchestrated the murder of Uriah, who was likely his friend, one of his fighting men, to steal his wife. And he, it's like he's digging it in in some way. And you're like, why would you highlight that? And then he goes on from there and he highlights Mary. And you're like, well, what's going on with Mary? We know the reason that she's pregnant. But at the time, all that people would have seen is that a teenage girl, most likely a teenage girl, is pregnant before she's married. Her husband almost divorces her because of it. So in some ways, every single one of them has something in their story. They're outsiders. They're people that you would think they don't get included in that. And it's not just them. As he goes through the genealogy, he's highlighting. He already, we already talked about David's major mistake. He highlights that in the list of kings he goes through. You would think he could cherry pick the, let's talk about just the good kings. There's not many to choose from, honestly, but he doesn't do that. He talks about Manasseh and Ahaz. Under Manasseh's reign, people were practicing child sacrifice. The king was. And it was so bad that the Bible tells us that Israel was worse than the Canaanite people before them, the people that God drove out in order to give Israel the land. You're like, why would he highlight that? Why would he talk about the deportation to Babylon? That's the worst moment possibly, I mean, arguably, in Israel's history. They wouldn't even, the, the literal language there is the migration. They wouldn't even talk about it as exile. It was almost so painful we don't talk about this. And yet he highlights all these things intentionally as he talks about the coming of Christ. And you're like, why? What does it all mean? Why would Matthew do that? Here's what I'm getting at. The story of our faith is not the story of good people who earn or deserve something from God because of their good behavior, their good background, and their good performance. It's a story. Our faith is the story of God's grace. His undeserved favor on people like you and me, sinners like you and me. It's not the story of perfect people. It's the story of a perfect God saving a very imperfect people. And there's a couple of myths, and to be honest, I should have just called them lies. So as you write these notes down, you might just 
you know, put slash lie, because that's what they are, right? But there's two that I want to bring up this morning and hopefully just blow them up, right? That I think Matthew 1 just sort of reminds us, hey, those things are not true and here's what is true. This first myth, I'll say it here, this myth that the gospel is for good, good Christian people with good Christian backgrounds, this lie, that the gospel is for good Christian people with good Christian backgrounds. And listen, I don't know that many of us, if you're here and you're a believer, if I ask you, is that true or false, right? That myth, right? That you would say, that's totally true. I think it's more something that seeps in a little bit. And you begin to think you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you came from a Christian family. And listen, I'm, if you have, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for my Christian background. But it's easy to begin to fall into that legalism and the pharisaical mindset, the Pharisees, of looking at other people and going, they don't come from the right background. Maybe that person's too. I could never imagine that person coming to know and love Jesus. The truth is, is here, the gospel's for all people for all times and all places. The gospel's for all people for all times in all places. In fact, Matthew, that's what's so beautiful about this. You can't get past the first chapter of the New Testament and still believe that lie, that myth. It challenges us right off the bat. Who did the Savior come for? That mess of people. <laughs> a mess of people like us in all of our brokenness. You see, the gospel, when I say the gospel is for all people, for all times and all places, you say, what is the gospel? The gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, whosoever, do you know what the Greek word whosoever means? Whosoever. All. That anyone who would come to him and believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel is what the Apostle Paul tells us, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Matthew 1 is illustrating what Jesus later on says about himself in Luke 5 and Luke 19. Luke 5, 31 and 32, Jesus says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you know who he's saying that to? He's saying that to the Pharisees as he's sitting with Matthew. Matthew has been called out of his tax booth. He's a tax collector. Everyone hates tax collectors. To some extent with good reason. The tax collector, the Jewish tax collectors were people who worked for the Roman government and who made their enormous amount of wealth on taking more money than they were supposed to from their Jewish brothers and sisters. That's not the right kind of person that you would think, I bet Jesus is going to pick him. And so as they're there, as Jesus is sitting with the tax collectors, it happens again in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector. Everyone really, really hates him. And then Jesus comes to his house and eats with him. And he says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus looks at the Pharisees, looks at those who are grumbling, saying, well, they're not the right kind of people with the right kind of backgrounds. And he says, guys, I didn't come for those who think they don't need me, who think they're well. I came for those who know that they're sick. I came for those who know that they're broken and sinful. The gospel goes out to everyone, to anyone. See, the question is not, let me try to hammer this home. The question is not whether you come from the right background or not. The question is whether you will humble yourself and place your faith in Jesus. Every single person here, myself included, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's not our background or our upbringing or our parents' faith that saves us or cleanses us. It's the blood of Jesus, the grace of God received by faith. And that goes out to everyone and to anyone to say, and would you turn? Would you turn from your sin 
and trust Jesus with your life. And for those of us who believe that, know that, and embrace that, God has given us the responsibility, the command, go into all nations and make disciples. Go tell people the good news that's for them. Now, second myth, and it's very uh, related to the first one, right? But maybe just a little bit uh, different. The myth is this, that God can't use someone like me. The truth, if God can use them, he can use you. If God can use them, he can use you. So when I say God can't use someone like me, I think for some of us, what happens And I've heard people in the course of pastoral ministry, right? I've heard people, sat down with people who, you ask them, like, do you think God has forgiven you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Like, we know the right answer. You're like, I know he's forgiven me, and like, I'm washed clean, that Jesus' death on the cross paid for my sin. I'm not, like, God's not mad at me anymore. But there's this nagging sense of, like, but I, I don't know that God could really use me. I messed up too many times. I was the prodigal for too long. My, my past is too broken. Or maybe it's this. I just don't know enough. I don't know enough of the scriptures. I don't feel confident in these things. I, I know God saved me. I just don't know that he could really use me. And again, you can't get past Matthew 1 and still believe that. Because if God can use them, then God can use you. Just, I mean, I know I've said it already, but let's just be reminded here. There are people in that list in Matthew 1 that have done things that were not only wrong, but criminal. (laughs) And God still used them. You've got someone who engaged in prostitution. God still used her. You've got a king who abused his power, set up his own friend's death, and stole his wife. God still used him. Father Abraham, right? You're like, well, he he was great, right? He allowed his wife to be captured, really to be trafficked twice. Lied about it to save his own skin. And yet God still used him. Now, hear me say, I'm not saying we should do any of these things, right? There comes that penitent heart that says, Father, forgive me. But it's not about our pedigree and our performance. It's about our repentance and our willingness to be obedient to the Father and say, Lord, here's my life. Use it. Jacob, right? Do you know God used Jacob? And Jacob, particularly in his early years, I mean, it's just awful. If you've read his story, it is cringeworthy. There's a moment where Jacob goes into his father, Isaac, and his father is old, half blind, right? And he tricks his own dad into believing that he's his older brother. And twice in the narrative, I was reading this recently, where Isaac is like, are you sure you're Jacob, right? Because you feel like Esau. And twice Jacob's like, "Uh uh-huh, yep, I am. It's like, what do you have to, what has to be going on inside of you where you're tricking your old, half-blind, dying father into giving you the blessing? And yet God doesn't look at Jacob and say, sorry, man, I can't use you for the rest of your life. You screwed up too big, too horribly. Instead, eventually, Jacob meets God and encounters God, and he's used by the Lord. There are out, some of us, I don't know enough, there are outsiders in this list and in the scriptures who probably didn't know anything when they gave their life over to the Lord. Did God use them? Yes. And I avail yourself to the scriptures, read it, get it into your word, but don't sit there and think, well, because I don't know enough or I'm not confident enough, it's not about our confidence, it's really our confidence in him, not our confidence in ourselves, but in his ability, not our inability. It's not about our resume. It's about God's grace and his sovereignty and his goodness. And again, our willingness to just say, Lord, here I am. Use me. And here's what's so incredible. We've got some incredible promises 
throughout the scriptures that God takes even the worst moments of our lives, some of our greatest regrets and greatest mistakes and moments of sin, and somehow, some way, God takes those things and actually uses them for our ultimate good. Romans 8.28 says, God is working in all things, in all things, to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even in the hardships, even in the trials. Romans 8.29, he goes on to say that we've been predestined by the Lord and God, for those he's predestined, he's conforming us to the image of Christ conforming us to the image of Jesus through all of that stuff. He's shaping us to look more like him. He goes on uh, earlier in Genesis 50, there's a moment where Joseph looks at his brothers. You think about what his brothers did to him. And he tells them this. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God somehow takes our greatest mistakes and even turns them into platforms to trumpet his grace. Let me say that again. He takes some of our greatest failures, some of our mistakes, some of the worst moments of our lives, and in his sovereignty and his goodness, he turns them around and makes them platforms to be able to share with others, minister others, and trumpet the mercy and the grace of God. Let me close with this. We've called this series Uncommon Crown because at Christmas time we celebrate this uncommon, wonderful, majestic, one-of-a-kind Savior the king who came for us. And listen, the, the pages of history, and honestly, the pages of scripture, you don't have to look far. The pages of history and the pages of scripture are filled with really terrible kings. There's a few good ones here and there, but there's a lot more bad. Kings who murdered and plotted and conquered their way into the kingship. Kings who ruled with iron fists, who were bloodthirsty and angry and evil and unjust It's all across the pages of scripture, all across the pages of history, and yet here, Matthew 1, here at Christmas time, what we're celebrating is this king who had every right and all authority to come in conquest. And he will when he returns. He's coming not as a baby, but as the conquering king. But at Christmas time, he humbled himself. Stepped out of heaven, and the scriptures tell us not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I was touched again as we were just singing that song earlier. Let me read to you the lyric of that again. No other king, no other king would stand the mockery, be led to to slaughter, and refuse to speak. Take up a cross and choose to die with Thebes. Take up a cross and give his life for me. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas time. Can I encourage you? Can I implore you, church? Look past the presents and the trees and all the, all the good things of Christmas. They're not bad things, right? They're, some of them are bad, but they're mostly good things, right? Look past those things and remember the meaning of what we're celebrating. The king who stepped out of heaven for you and for me. And if you're a believer in Christ... You have every reason to celebrate and be joyful this Christmas season. And listen, I say that knowing in a room this size with this many people, there are people here right now whose circumstances are not good. Every single one of us as believers are promised suffering and trial. And for some of us, 
you're in the valley season right now. Some of you know my family, right? This has been a long five months for us. My daughter, uh, my third, I've got four kiddos, my third child, my oldest daughter just got out of the hospital after her second somewhat major surgery uh, in the last five months. It's been a long season for us. It's been a long and sometimes dark valley. And yet, Jesus is still king. And he's still good. We got people in our church who are dealing with the loss of a loved one. I think of a widow in particular at the Delaware campus. Her husband passed away unexpectedly back in February. And, and this is the first Christmas, right? First holiday season. And it's hard. And it can be lonely at times. But Jesus is still king. And he's still good. Some of us are dealing with cancer diagnoses or miscarriages or whatever it may be. Hardship and trial. Suffering in the path of obedience. Even in the midst of the worst circumstances. And I don't say it lightly. Jesus is still good. And he's still king. And there's still a reason to celebrate and be grateful. And to say no other king. No other king like him. For some of us, you're here today and honestly, you just don't know that king. You've never met him. And I'm not above pleading or begging. <laughs> I'm pleading with you, begging you. Think this morning. The gospel is for all people, for all times and all places. The gospel is for you. The problem of your life, I talk with people a lot, and frankly, most of the time, we've misdiagnosed our problem. We think our problem is our kids, our spouse, our job. We don't have enough money, right? Need to make a career change. It's the, it's the people around us. It's our boss, whatever it may be. We need a spouse. I'm lonely. We think that's the problem. The Bible's super clear. While those, some of those things may be problems, the problem of our life is our broken relationship with God because of our sin and our rebellion against him. And the gospel tells us that God so loved us that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ. And Jesus lived a perfect life in our place and he died a brutal death on the cross to pay for your sin and mine. And on the third day, he rose from the grave to give you new life. And I would plead with you this morning, if you don't know him, turn from your sin, trust him with your life and begin to live under the good rule of this good king. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are. And God, I pray for all of us who are here this morning who um, maybe have struggled with that first myth, that first lie. And if we're honest with ourselves, God, we've looked around at some other people in our lives and we've thought, I just don't see how they, how that person could ever really come to love you Father, forgive us and remind us, God, that we take the good news to the least of these, to the person who's far from you. Remind us, Father, that our sin separated us from you and you graciously saved us and forgave us. And may we take that message to those around us, to this community. Father, I pray for those of us this morning who are struggling with that second myth, that lie that we think, I know God saved me, but I just don't know if God could use me I've disqualified myself. I wandered too long. I made too many mistakes. It's too late. God, will you break that in the name of Jesus? And by the power of your Holy Spirit, remind us that if you can use these people we see across the pages of scripture, you can use us. 
And God, let us go from here. Let us serve one another and love one another and reach out to people who don't know you and say, God, here I am, use me. Because it's not about my background, my performance, my qualifications. It's about your goodness and your sovereignty and your grace and your call upon our lives. And then God, for those of us who are here, and if this is you, as we just continue to pray, I wanna ask you if if you'll pray with me. If you're here today and you say, "I've, I've never taken that step to trust my life to Jesus, to turn from my sin, then I'd invite you to pray with me now. And you pray in your own words or you can pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, today, this morning, I turn from my sin and I trust you with my life. I ask for forgiveness and I trust and I believe that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross to pay for my sin. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave and I'll rise up with him. And my hope, my life is fully and wholly yours from this day forward. And Jesus, I pray it in your mighty name. Amen.